If a visitor were to come to Ozaki County, what's one of the first things they would notice? It's almost all white. According to the 2010 census, Ozaki is made up of 95% whites, 2% Latinos, 2% Asians, and just 1% blacks. Meanwhile, in Milwaukee, only 45% of the population is white. So, how did it get this way? Why are the suburbs of Milwaukee so lacking in diversity? And what does that mean for us today? Growing up, I heard a lot of different explanations for why my community was almost all white people. It just happened that way. Or maybe black people just don't want to live in the suburbs. In any case, the subtext was clear. They like it there, and we like it here. In reality, however, the segregation we see today was a direct result of intentional steps taken to keep minorities out of the suburbs and in poverty. Reggie Jackson is a journalist, political advocate, and race relations expert. He spoke about the systemic segregation at Vineyard Church in April 2019. We had policies uh, that were known as racial zoning laws. And so they created these racial zoning laws that said, you know, um, black people can't live in this part of town. Jewish people can't live in this part of town. Latinos can't live in this part of town. So they began to segregate communities that way. And immediately that was challenged in court and the Supreme Court ruled that those were unconstitutional that those were a violation of the 14th Amendment. So what happens next is people find new ways of creating segregated communities. And so part of what they do is they use these racial restrictive covenants. Now these are attached to the deeds of property when you buy a home or, or a property for a business and they specify who can legally occupy that space. Now the reason that these are important is because they were used around the country Hundreds of thousands of these were written in different communities around the country, and they were written primarily to keep blacks out of white neighborhoods, but they also impacted other communities as well. They impacted uh, Latino communities, Asians, Native Americans, even some white ethnic groups. So, although racial zoning was considered illegal, racial covenants were not. Covenants were embedded into property deeds that prevented non-whites from owning property. This, along with the redlining that made it impossible for blacks and Latinos to get loans, forced minorities to live in a very specific area of Milwaukee. Back to Reggie. Because that's an example of one of those covenants. It was written in South Milwaukee in 1937, was set to expire January 1st, 2024. And these covenants that were used around the country became... Uh, illegal in 1968 with the passage of the Fair Housing Act. The federal government finally said, you know, these things are not right, they're unconstitutional, but they were written and they're still there. That's right. 16 counties in Milwaukee still have racially restrictive covenants on their properties, just sitting there. No one has gotten rid of them. So, we know the overwhelming whiteness of the suburbs is due to very specific government protocols that discriminated against blacks and Latinos. But what is the effect today? Um, so, I'm Erica Turner, and um, I, we, have, we list ourselves as a co-founder. I'm currently the executive director of Bridge the Divide, and it's about three years old. This is Erica. She's Zooming with me from a desk in her living room. My friend Heidi and I met at church and had discussions about what our city looked like. So we live in Cedarburg. Um, I've lived here for about 12 or 13 years. Heidi's lived here for, I think, about five years, maybe. 
Um, and and we had a conversation about the um, homogeneity of the area. Like, it's just, it's glaring, it's stark, but it seems like people from outside of the area, because I'm not from here, or like her, people who had lived in larger cities that came back that it seemed so glaring to us and not to other people. So we'd had conversations at church. She at the time was writing for a magazine and she asked if she could just put some information in there, kind of an art interview about my family and what it was like for us to live in, in Cedarburg. And, um, and she did that. And there was, you know, there was some decent feedback for me, a game changer, I think was um, it's about 2016, where there was um, another a, a police killing, and it was of um, a black man, and some of the response to it was in Sherman Park. Things were just on fire. There were there was some there was community unrest in my household. There was pain there was you know we're watching tv 24 7 crying about it it's just down the road how horrible it is and then we would get outside of our home and have people say things like yeah well you know what did he do people are always doing something or you really shouldn't burn down your town like what's the point of that and and they just didn't seem to get where the where the the visceral feeling was for my family and so that for me was a time when I decided that I was going to have to talk a little bit more because how can you expect people to understand your point of view and your perspective if they haven't lived it and then you don't tell them. Erica is referring to the fatal shooting of Seville Smith in 2016. His death set off riots that lasted for two days in Sherman Park. The officer was initially charged with first-degree reckless homicide but was later acquitted. In 2018, the officer, Dominique Hagen-Brown, was imprisoned after pleading guilty to prostitution and false imprisonment charges. He was sentenced to three years in jail. Spurred by the Sherman Park shooting, she co-founded Bridge the Divide with Heidi Wheeler. The two created a podcast, began community engagements, and started the conversation. And we formed Bridge the Divide to, to create those spaces that were safe, in the sense that you could ask questions that maybe some would see as, why are you asking that question? Don't you know that? Um, but brave in the sense that you should not expect to be comfortable. You shouldn't expect to come to a meeting of ours and go, well, this was great. I feel great. No, you should feel, you know, kind of empowered. You should feel like, I, I didn't know that. Why didn't I know that? What can I do? You know, there should be some kind of agitation in there because that agitation is really what leads to change. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your experience um, as a black woman in, you know, a uh, 96% white community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a little different. It's, I have had, let me go, in case you haven't noticed yet, like I talk in, I talk in stories, I see things in stories, it's just, it's just my, my way of doing things, but when I think about my time here, um, I think about people who say, well, you seem to be happy enough, joyful enough, successful enough, I guess it hasn't affected you, 
And that's not true. What what happens with, especially, I can't, black people are not a monolith, so I'm not speaking for every black person everywhere. But from my experience, it's just, it's exhausting because you still have to deal with both. Like, I can't let the way, um, if, I get, if I think I'm passed over for a promotion um, at a time when I, I feel like I'm much more qualified for someone else, and I think, I'm not sure why you did that. I, I don't know if it's because of race, but it sure feels like it's because of race. And and I'm trying to wrestle with that, but I can't let that consume me and not be a good hard worker, a good parent, a good wife, a good community member. That we have to do all of those things too, even while we are fighting some of the overt things, you know, about race people shouting at my kids to go back to where they come from and my kids come in to ask me like it's down the street from where they were shouting at me so I'm not sure where they think I come from <laughs> I come from the same place they do but it's it still happens it still happens so frequently and like I said some of them are, are overt things many more of them are just covert things where you have to suck it up and drive on as they say in the army or you know, or do I choose this as the time where I have to fight and and be public about this fight? But it's it's always very exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's it's going out. It's being ready to deal with it. Being ready to deal with somebody saying something that they don't even think is a problem, and that means you have to deal with it, or you're gonna just start shouting at a person who's like, I met one black person in my life, and then she yelled at me. I'm like, yeah, but did you hear what you said? You know, it's it's tiring it's tiring and sometimes you change your behavior like let me just stay in the house and not go out there then I won't have to worry about how I'm going to address racism today I just won't go out there and I don't have to worry about it this is safe my house is safe my family is safe and and it's a it's a it's a part of the trauma when I'm talking to people about what racism does to you this this internal struggle all the time Whereas how nice would it be just to that it not matter, that I could just go out and nothing was going to harm me or hurt me or make me sad or make me angry. In May of 2021, there was a law enforcement panel where the Ozaki County Sheriff, five police chiefs, and a police captain met to answer questions on race and policing. There was that... Um kind of uh, seminar or that discussion with the police chiefs of, yes. um, mm-hmm. you know, of Zaki County, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And there was this moment when I was, I was uh, watching through where they were talking about um, these traffic reports and how they were yes. trying to be more cognizant of their traffic stops. And there right. was a moment where they said, oh, you know, um, Erica's sorting through that for us. And, right. and I was interested, what was your thought? What was going through your head during that moment? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, again, I keep, I, you're gonna think that I'm, like, tired all the time, I'm some little old lady just, just huddled in the corner, tired all the time, but, but the exhausting part of that is, if it's important enough to you, then you should be doing the work, so, there is the, I want to help do it, because I want it to be done, I think it's important. And I, and I think that sometimes people won't do things if you don't push them to do it. And you keep pushing and keep pushing. And if I I want to partner with law enforcement, but we're at these such beginning steps of 
of a partnership, then I think it's, yeah, well, that sounds good. You, you know, you go ahead and do that. And I'm like, ah, well, but if it's important to all of us, you know, you do it. Okay. So in this back and forth again, if I don't do it, will it not get done and then fade into the background? So I feel the, the, I feel compelled to do it because it needs to get done. But at the same time, trying to figure out how to, how to let other people realize how important it is so they'll feel compelled to do it. In August of 2020, NPR reached out to Black Americans to hear about their experiences. Nearly 500 responded. Many described feelings of burnout. This was particularly prevalent around activists and community organizers. One woman said, quote, Sometimes you can have depression, and sometimes it's this very real feeling of hopelessness. All of this adds up together to a chronic phenomenon of activist burnout. They made you czar of the school system. Um, what, what policy change would you like to see? Um, I think probably... I think probably the biggest one now for me is is curriculum and and specifically history. The history that we learn. All of us that sit in these seminars when we're, you know, middle-aged people um and learning things about history that we should have learned in middle school or in high school and we're just now learning. And if we're just now learning it, we're the ones that are the teachers. So are we not teaching it to our students? I don't want another generation of of people who have to wait till they're middle-aged to hear some fundamental truths about how this country was formed, about what things happened to get us where we are today. I don't want one more student saying, oh, well, in Ozaki County, there were Native Americans, and then they agreed to leave, and, and that's what you heard about history. I mean, that, come on, that is not, <laughs> you can't teach pockets of history and say that you have taught the whole thing. We don't need another generation of people who can't sit down and sit in and, and lament and grieve with indigenous folks who had their land stolen from them and say, oh, here, you can have this reservation and you should thank us. You know, I, I don't I need that to stop. And I think that the teaching the history, correct history, appropriate history, complete history could be a game changer. Then we wouldn't have to always have these conversations when we're middle aged. So that that curriculum of teaching a full history of, of letting people stop talking about benevolent slavers Stop saying that. You know, you can't own people and beat them and rape them and then say, oh, yeah, but, you know, the good ones didn't do that so often. <sighs> so I think I think that's my thing. I think that would be this giant starting point that I think would would open up the eyes of of everyone. Just learning that history and appreciating our history for what it really it doesn't mean that you have to sit there. You don't have to grieve forever. You don't have to cry forever but you need to stop and cry for a minute because it's hard and ugly and then you start taking your steps forward so i think that's what i would that's i would vote for if you can make that happen go right ahead i'll (laughs) I'll take it i'll take it 
Ozaki County did not occur naturally. It was built. The people who built our community designed it to keep non-whites out. They did this by creating racial covenants and preventing minorities from getting mortgages. At every turn, they cheated and changed the rules to keep people down. The fact that the covenant still exists today is a painful example of the racism that is so deeply entrenched in our community. It would appear that the founding members of our community were successful in their vision of a segregated suburb. But they don't have to stay that way. So I that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else that you would like to get out there to, to say, to comment on? No, I think maybe if I can add one more thing that I think is a change that I am enjoying seeing. You are probably the third high school student that I have talked to in the past few months. A year ago, there were no high school students. There were no, or, or, or even college students. I think some college students in there too. There weren't students that, that, we're wondering about this. We're willing to talk about it. It was, there was silence. So I think saying, you know, middle schoolers, high schoolers, young adults that are becoming aware of this part of our world that either they weren't aware of before or maybe weren't particularly interested in, I think that that's huge. That is this giant step because the, you young folks are going to be the ones, we're going to be gone. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not tricking myself into believing that we're going to have all this fixed before I die. It'd be great so that I wouldn't be having the same conversations that my mom had, my grandma had. But it is the young people that are going to make this change. And to have conversations about this with young people, I think it's, that's, a, that's going to be the difference. And that's a big thing that's happening now that wasn't happening, you know, six months ago or a year ago. So I, I add that to ways that I know that things are changing, that things are different. To close this out, I want to play for you a poem written and read by the Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful we are and be ashamed. I too am America.